It's in your son's beautiful and precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's get after it. Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be a black hardback around you in the seat underneath in front of you. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we will be. Uh, If you've been walking with us for any time now, you know we're right in the middle uh, of Hebrews. Not in the middle, we're toward the end. We've been in it for over half a year now. Uh, But the end is in sight. Uh, We'll be out here, done with Hebrews, toward the end of October, the beginning of November. Um, So Hebrews 11, we're going to pick it up today in verse 23, which is where we left off. Um, You might notice we're missing a few people today. Um, I'll let you know, just some news real fast here. Uh, Monday was a real interesting day for me. Uh, It was a real good, productive day for most of the day. Uh, We had a board meeting up here at the church, which is always a lot of fun. If you know us or have been at a board meeting, uh, you know that we like to, what? Laughter just immediately. I didn't even tell a joke yet. We like to have fun, and so we got up here and we told jokes and and had a good time together. And we did talk about some important stuff for a couple minutes, just so it was a good meeting. Um, And we left, and so it was a good day. We left, I was driving home, uh, and I get a phone call, uh, and our board chair, Jen, uh, had just found out, it was from Chris, her husband, had found out that her father, her stepfather, had passed away uh, Monday. And so it's interesting how days can go from being good to kind of not so good pretty fast. Uh, so all of a sudden I was making phone calls. That kind of news kind of hits me hard. Um, so it was an interesting day. If you didn't know, you can be praying for Jen and her family. They're in Dallas right now, doing okay. Uh, so you can be praying. Um, but I was going to bed that night, Monday night, after doing some praying myself, and was just thinking, man, isn't that the, like the human life? I mean, we can just kind of be up here, and then just, it switches like that. Uh, and really, it seems like a lot of times we have no control over it. I mean, we don't, the idea, I think, that you and I have a real significant control over our lives is a mythical, false idea. I mean, you can put that right up there with the unicorn, and Loch Ness Monster, and PC computers working, um, whatever, I mean, you put it right up there with all the mythical ideas. At the end of the day, you don't really have control in a significant way over anything that's important in your life. So, I mean, you don't have control over the people around you. What they do, what happens to them, you don't have control really over your own life. I mean, you can eat real healthy, you can be very careful yourself, um, but you don't know what's, what's waiting for you at an intersection. Uh, and you don't get to control that. You don't get to control that. And so, I mean, that's kind of the human life, right? I mean, you're just kind of hit with these tragedies and you're hit with this constant reminder. We saw last week that there is a city that God is preparing for us, but we're not there yet. We're not. We're on our way, but we're not there yet. And so it's easy to get distracted and get thrown off and have these doubts come into our hearts and go, what's happening? Where is God? What is he doing? And then, I mean, I've always said this before, maybe an even scarier proposition is that those things don't happen to us. And so we have a comfortable, peaceful, wealthy life. I mean, maybe that's the scarier option of the two. And we never realize that we need him, and we need a savior, and we need the city that is coming. And so the question is, over and over again, how do we get there? How do we not get thrown off track? How do we stay faithful? How do we keep our eyes on him? And that's what the book of Hebrews has been all about for a good 11 and a half chapters if you've been with us. It's a pastor writing to his congregation saying, This is how we're going to get to the end. This is how we're going to finish the race strong. This is how we're going to endure. As we hit chapter 11, we hit kind of the floodgates opening up, and he's just gone off and off and off about this thing called faith. This thing, um, this response of trust to who God is and what he's promised us. And he says very clearly, faith will be what gets us to the end. Faith will be what allows us to walk through tragedy and comfort. 
to follow him. And so if you've been with us, Hebrews 11 kind of goes through the salvation story with lots of different examples of people who had faith. So we started at the very beginning, right, with uh, Abel, Adam and Eve's son, and then Enoch, and then Noah. We moved into the time of the patriarchs with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And today we'll hit kind of the Mosaic period, the time of Moses, okay? So Hebrews 11, verse 23, we'll pick it up. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. We'll talk about that. Don't. Verse 24, beautiful baby. 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, but he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies. Okay, now we enter into the story of Moses. Moses is a towering figure in the Old Testament. Uh, If you were going to rank the men that are uh, a part of the Old Testament story, Moses is right up there. I mean, it's hard to imagine someone higher than Moses. So the story of Moses, we find it from the book of Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy. Leviticus and Numbers, four big books all devoted to Moses. When Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, it's said about Moses that there was, a never, there was never a prophet like him. There was never a man since who knew God the way that Moses did, face to face. And so if you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's real interesting because it almost seems like Moses is best friends with God. Like, they have a very, very close relationship that really, honestly, no one else had had for the Israelites. So if you're ever wondering, in Leviticus or Numbers, where's Moses and where's God, they're probably together somewhere. Either up in the mountain, in the tabernacle, they're probably together, they're probably talking. When God tends to get angry in those books, his gut reaction over and over again is, I'm going to kill everyone except for Moses. Moses is like the teacher's pet. I mean, Moses and God are very, very very close with each other. They know each other face to face. So he's this towering figure. You have his story here told in just a few lines. Um, Moses survived. He was an Israelite. He survived this kind of genocide by Pharaoh. If you remember the story or you've seen the movie, uh, you know he, got, he, he was hidden. He floated down. He survived. He then gets adopted into the royal court of Egypt. Um, and so we might talk about this. Uh, historians actually looked back and said the way adoption works back then, that means he was actually in line to be the pharaoh. So he is in, right? He's in the Egyptian royal court. He's growing up. At some point, you see it here, he chooses to not, no longer, to no longer be a part of the Egyptian regime of the royal court. And then God comes and says, hey, Moses, we're getting the Israelites out of slavery. We're going to free them. So Moses parts the Red Sea. Moses sees the destroyer pass over the firstborn of the Israelites. Moses gets the law from God. Now when Moses dies, a guy named Joshua takes his place. This is what we see here in Jericho, verse 29 and 30. 
That's the first kind of battle into the promised land. They go into the promised land. The walls of Jericho fall. We'll talk about that. And then Rahab is a prostitute who had actually, um, in the promised land, helped out the spies that went in beforehand. And really interestingly enough, she is counted righteous because of that. If you'll remember from the past couple of weeks, faith seems to be the badge of God's people. And as Rahab has faith in the God of Israel, she says she's counted as one of them, right? God says, you're in. You're one of the people. And so now, when Jesus' line is mentioned, guess who's in there? Rahab. How do I know Jesus loves women who have been taken advantage of? Rahab, the Gentile prostitute. He says, come on. Come on. This is the badge. You're on the team. And at that point, just like Noah, she condemned the rest who didn't believe, who didn't have faith. But she wore the badge. She put on the uniform. And God said, I'm proud. Do you remember that from past, last week? I'm not ashamed to say that's mine. That's part of my covenant. Rahab, beautiful story. Okay, lots to see here, lots to learn. Uh, let me point out this first as we get started. In verse 24, there's three verbs I want you to see here. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused. Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered... The reproach of Christ of greater wealth. So he refused and he chose and he considered. This are, these are um, real emphatic kind of gut, emotional, and intellectual decisions. To refuse something, to choose something, to consider, to count something. So we'll say this as we get started. Faith seems to be a... Um, I'm sorry, we're way behind here. Hey, can we go to the front of the PowerPoint? There we go. Faith is calculated. Faith seems to be this calculation. Moses refuses something and chooses something else. Moses counts something. He's considering something. It seems like faith is, and so we've said this before, it's not as blind as some people would make it seem to be, right? It's not. Faith here seems to be more just the choice of what is more valuable. What is, what, what is more worthy? What is more worth following and seeking and pursuing? And so Moses, he has faith, and by faith he refuses, and he chooses, and he counts. In a sense, what he's doing here, we see it, he's, he's comparing. Faith seems to be this kind of reasoned out comparison. Look, look at what he's comparing here, verse 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and instead chose to be counted with the Israelites, with God's people, rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. So, I mean, if you think about it, Moses, again, was on the inside of the Egyptian royal court, had everything he wanted, everything he would have wanted, and at some point in his life, if you read the story, he sees this, like, struggling, being oppressed, and he says, those are my people, these aren't. And he says, I'm going to make a choice to be with them. If you remember the story, he actually kills an Egyptian who's oppressing an Israelite. But the Israelites, right after that story, are scared of him. He kind of loses both groups, in a sense. He refuses the Egyptian association, and then the Israelites are afraid because of how he did it. But he says, I don't want this. I don't want this. I want that. The first choice he makes here is this choice of identity between the world and God. Who does he want to be identified with? Is it the power and status and wealth of Pharaoh and his court? Or with God's people, even if they're being oppressed and enslaved and abused. Those who have faith, those who follow God, 
you know, this trust that's born out of who he is, uh, oftentimes lose friends or family or respect, things like that. Um, the kind of the joke with pastors is you kind of get used to making people upset. It's kind of part of the job. Um, and the joke is, you know, someone got real upset at me after this service, and the, the joke is always, well, did you open up the Bible? So you open up the Bible, then people are probably going to get upset. That's, by definition, that's what God does. He's subversive. He critiques. He goes into our hearts and says, that's not right, and that's not right, and that's not right. So someone who's following God, and who's being faithful to that, that mission and that purpose, is going to have the same reaction at points. Where someone says, that does not make me feel comfortable. That does not make me want to be around you as much. That does not make me want to include you as much. That's the choice for us. Now, I'll say this and just be real careful about saying it. Be careful about how you offend people, right? There are some things that should offend about the gospel and some things that shouldn't. Does that make sense? I think sometimes Christians, at least in the Bible Belt, have overestimated the ability of ultra-conservative, extra-biblical moralism to convert people. Uh, so because I don't, we're not gonna, I'm not going to, I don't want to make anyone mad at this statement, okay? Um, but there are good reasons to make people upset, right? And there are wrong reasons to make people upset. There are reasons that someone would say, he follows the Lord, and he is concerned about me. And then there are other things you can do that just says, he's a jerk. He's a jerk. He thinks he's better than everybody else. I don't want to be around him. Avoid that one. Go for the first, okay? One way you can do that, stay on heart issues. So if I have a friend who doesn't act exactly the way I act, I'm not going to constantly just chip away at his actions. But if I'm really concerned about him, I'm going to ask him about his heart. And say, well, where's your heart when you do that? Right? Because actions are not as black and white as sometimes Christians have made them out to be. Heart issues are a little clearer. And heart issues mean you actually are a little more concerned with somebody. But he says, you know what? I'm going to leave the court of Pharaoh. I'm going to go with the people of Israel. He makes another choice, another comparison here. Verse 26. He considers the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Again, this is not Moses saying, you know what? I don't care about stuff. I don't care about rewards. I don't care about treasure. This is him saying, I want better treasure. This? Uh, I see something better, and I'm going to go after that. The comparison here is between investing, investing in temporal things or eternal things. Investing in things that um, are bound to fade away and bound to disappear or things that are going to last. Again, this is not maybe what we call blind faith. This is what a stockbroker would call smart investment, right? Do you want to go to the, the short-term gain that might drop off or do you want to go to the long-term gain that's, that's guaranteed? Jesus does this often in his parables. If you remember back to Luke 12, he says, why would, you, why would you store up all these treasures on earth where one of two things is always bound to happen, 100% of the time. They break or they're taken from you. Everything you've ever bought in your entire life, everything you've worked for, all the treasures that are around you, that you have your eye on, that you've gotten, will do one of two things. They'll break, the moths will come, or they'll be taken from you. Or you'll die and leave them here. And then I think the story goes, your idiot kid gets to ruin it, right? <laughs> all that you worked for, all that wealth. Yeah, it's not yours. That's what Ecclesiastes would say, right? You build up all this wealth, and then what happens to it? Well, whoever comes behind you gets to do whatever they want with it. What's the point of building this great kingdom? Because the next ruler might throw it all away. 
So he says, Jesus says, why would you invest in that when you could invest in treasures in heaven? It's not the choice between wanting reward and not wanting reward. It's a comparison. What's the best reward? What do I really want? Moses says, I don't want that. I don't want these fleeting pleasures, these temporary status of wealth. I mean, he had it. At this time, Egypt was the, the, the kingdom, the, the power in the world. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world. Again, most people think Moses is actually on track to be the next Pharaoh because of the way adoption works. And he steps away from all of it. And it's not because he's crazy, and it's not because he hasn't thought things through. It's because he refused something, he chose something else, and he counted it as worthy. Faith was this calculated thing for Moses. Faith leaves everything behind to pursue him. It's this thought through, reasoned out abandonment. So I think Paul would say something very similar. In fact, he used the same language in Philippians 3, right? He says, I've counted all things as loss. So Paul says, I had status, I had some things going for me, but I threw it all away because one thing mattered to me. It was him, it was Jesus, and it was what he offered me. It was his reward, which if you read is righteousness and resurrection. He says, that's what I wanted. Everything else can be thrown away. It can all go. Now, um, he says kind of loss. The ESV that some of us have, I think, say rubbish. Um, the actual Greek there uh, would be translated a lot more offensively. Uh, it's a word you don't use in company. Maybe like a four-letter Greek word. Okay? He says, that's how I view all of it. It's nothing to me. It doesn't count at all. I don't even think about it. It might as well be trash that you throw away and don't even mention. Because I want one thing. I want him. And faith has the vision to see what is eternal and valuable and worthy and then the courage to follow it. So here's the second thing we'll say. If you look in verse 23, Moses' parents, they hid him. They saw that the child was beautiful. Let's talk about it just a minute, okay? I'm going to hold my jokes back. Um, traditionally, Moses wrote Exodus, where we see this for the first time. Um, so Moses apparently has this complex about how beautiful of a baby he was. Um, and then Hebrews throws him a bone. Uh, says, yeah, he's a beautiful baby. When we all get to the new heavens and earth, everyone will use this joke, right? What happened to you, Moses? The Bible tells us you're a cute baby, but we're looking at you now. Um, so I know that everyone, this might be historically the first time we see this idea of parent bragging about how cute their kid is, right? Um, historically in my life, infants have slightly misshapen heads, uh, have a hard time opening their eyes up. Um, so I know your babies are cute, but they're not in the Bible. That's all I'm saying. Moses wins that argument, okay? Um, so Moses twice, beautiful baby. We understand it, Moses. And his parents save him. Well, why do his parents save them? Because he was, or they were not afraid, verse 23, of the king's edict. They were not afraid. And then Moses himself, if you keep reading, 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the king. It seems like faith creates this fearlessness in God's people. This lack of fear for, honestly, what they should fear. It creates this fearlessness. So Moses' parents should have feared Pharaoh and the edict. They were slaves. They were nothing. I mean, they're killed for disobeying, and no one thinks twice about them. So if you think hard about the story in Exodus, what happens, uh, we don't think Moses leaves Is or Egypt just because he killed somebody and Pharaoh was mad at him for killing Moses was a prince. A prince can kill anybody they want. It's not a big deal. Moses could have gone back, Pharaoh, hey, you killed an Egyptian? Yeah, okay, whatever, and they move on. 
it's not really that big of an ordeal. The slaves, they could have been killed. No one would have blinked an eye about it. But they decided to disobey. What was a big deal in the Exodus story was if Moses said to Pharaoh, no, I, I will kill again, right? Because I'm on that team now. It wasn't just the act of killing and Pharaoh finds out and he's mad about it. It was the refusal to be an Egyptian and the choosing to be an Israelite. So Moses' parents should have been afraid. Now, Moses himself should have been afraid. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and Moses goes toe-to-toe with him. But by faith, they were not afraid. Remember, faith is this reaction to who God's revealed himself to be. It seems that the revelation of God creates courage in his people. It seems like if you're calculating things out, at this point, when God appears and is on your team, the scale shifts dramatically. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think we sang it, if God is for us, who could be against us? I mean, who? Really? Who? What? Once he appears, it seems like there's this unbelievable courage and boldness and fearlessness that's created in people. Where they follow and nothing really stops them. You see this. Why? In verse 27, he's not afraid of the king of Egypt. And then we have this four. For he endured as seeing him who was invisible. Why was he fearless? Because he saw who God was. And this is interesting. How do you see something that's invisible? Because it seems like Moses, he, he kept seeing, and he kept seeing, and he kept seeing. He, he's constantly reminded, the Psalm uh, chapter 16, not chapter, book, Psalm 16, I would say this, I have kept the Lord in front of me at all times, therefore I will not be shaken. Again, it's invisible. I mean, you can't see it, but, but it's this mental... Um, this gut keeping him at the forefront of your thoughts and affections and attention. And then, I mean, what shakes you? This is why Christians historically, since the beginning, have done a few things always. They've always read the Bible. They've always gotten together and eaten together and sang together. They've always prayed. These are all ways of keeping the Lord in front of us so that we're not shaken. We don't forget who's on our team. So that we can have this fearlessness, this courage. Um, And what this creates in people is is a group of people who can't be intimidated. We could say God's people don't bow down to anybody. Historically. I mean, you just don't. You don't bow down. You're not intimidated by anybody. Whether it be Pharaoh or anybody else. And this, at the end of the day, is really, really good news for the rest of the world. Um, So... Last Sunday was 9-11, the anniversary. Then Monday, of course, um, Jen's father passed. Um, and then Tuesday, I went to the Holocaust Museum. So it was a real interesting three days for me. By the end of Tuesday, I didn't want to be around anybody, right? I was like, everyone's evil. Just stay away from me. I'm going to be a hermit. Um, but we're, we're at the Holocaust Museum. They do a real good job of explaining kind of how movements like that happen and, and what can be done and things like that. And so they, I mean, explain... You know, there's a victim in something like that. There's a perpetrator. And there are bystanders. But then what we're called to be are upstanders. There's people who, who stand up and say, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen, at least on our watch. And now who can do that? A group of people who aren't afraid of anything. They're the only ones who can do that. This tyrannical regime or anything that's doing some kind of oppressive and just thing on any group of people... The one thing they have to hold over the heads of everybody is death. 
oppose us, we'll kill you. So if you, I mean, know or remember back, the concentration camps, some of them were right near, if not in the middle, of these big towns. Thousands of people are slaughtered like animals. And after, after um, the, the army comes in, they, they go, what were you doing? You, I mean, you saw you, what was happening here. What's happening is they didn't want to be killed too, right? Maybe not the most evil people in the world, but the choice was between saying something or being killed. Most people choose life. God's people historically choose death. If you remember from last week, because death isn't bigger than faith. God's people say, okay, kill us. That's not the end. If our God's force, who can be against us? It sure isn't going to be death that stands in our way. The best news for the world is there's a group of people who are so fearless that they'll stand up to anything and say, that's not happening. And if they look back and say, well, fine, we'll end you. Okay. But we're going to make a big deal about it. We're going to do our best. So God's people, they're, they're not intimidated. They don't, they don't back down. Um, and this courage, this fearlessness, it leads to what we call unqualified obedience. It leads to this real passionate obedience that really has no kind of doubt or question behind it. Um, so here we get to the, the story of Jericho, right? In verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. So let's set up the scene here. Because um, if any command in all of Scripture is going to be disobeyed, it was this right here. So Moses is, again, like superhero to the Israelites. God's best friend. Everyone loves him. And then he dies. His replacement is a guy named Joshua. I don't know if you've ever tried to replace someone who everybody loves, but it's a horrid thing to do, right? Every time you do something, they're like, the other guy wouldn't have done that. Uh, and so you're just constantly, I mean, it's big shoes to fill. It's hard to do. So Moses dies. They're entering the promised land. They have this first battle at Jericho. And God calls Joshua and says, hey, let me give you the game plan for the battle. Joshua goes, all right, let's do it. He goes, that's God. And God says, so you, you got that army, right? They've been practicing. They're looking pretty good. You got the army. And Joshua's like, yeah, we're ready. And he goes, okay, they're not doing anything. Okay, they're just going to sit down. They're going to relax. He goes, you got that band, right? And I think at this point, Joshua's starting to figure out the plan. So he's like, no, there's no band. There's no, there's no band. And God's like, I know there's a band. You need to get the band together. And what's going to happen is we're going to get the band, and you're just going to walk around the city a few times, and you're going to play some songs. And now, I've got to imagine Joshua is so upset at this point. Not even maybe because he's doubting it's going to work, but just because he has to be the one that goes back and tells the Israelites that's the plan, right? <laughs> Guys, we're going in for the first battle. Here's what we're going to do. Trust me on this one. We're going to get the band, and we're just going to go walk around it, okay? And everyone's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Moses would have never, is what is happening here. And so they do it. They do it, and they go, and, and the walls fall, and they take the city. And so people, I mean, different ways of trying to rationalize that, what happened, they play the songs, people, they get scared, I guess, and start killing each other, which is what happens in the story. In reality, what happened is, it's just God saying, guess what, I'm going to win this, you're not. I'm winning it, and you're not. So put the swords down, relax a little bit, pick up the flute, and go. Go walk around the city. And because of who their God was, and because of the fearlessness it created in them, they walked to that city. Can you imagine that walk? I've got to imagine, until the walls fall, there's some doubt, and there's some questioning. <laughs> there's some people ready to just jump on Joshua. <laughs> Told you that wasn't going to work. And it, it works. There's this unqualified obedience. And then, I mean, if you look back into Noah, Moses in verse 27, by faith he loved Egypt, not being afraid of the king, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. In verse 26, 
He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Verse 25, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God. The choice wasn't between maybe two good options, right? He chose suffering. He chose it. This fearlessness, it creates this unqualified obedience and even this endurance through suffering, through things that maybe wouldn't be exactly how we want them to be. Now, if you remember the story of Moses, um, when he leaves after... I'm sorry about that. Things are not working the way they're supposed to be today. When he leaves in Exodus, um, after killing the, uh, is the Hebrew... There we go. Moses kills the Egyptian. I'm sorry. He kills the Egyptian. He leaves the country. Um, and if you remember, he goes to Midian, where he's in exile, for 40 years, and he becomes a shepherd. Sometimes we skip over numbers like that in the Bible. That's 40 years of being a shepherd away from God's people. If you're not tracking with that, a shepherd is not like a world changer. It's not a sexy job. Moses never got a date by starting with the shepherd, right? I was a male nanny for about a year, a manny, if you will. I was good at it, needed a TV show. But again, I never started a line with that, right? You ever dated a manny? It just doesn't work. That's not how you do it. <laughs> Moses, for 40 years, for 40 years, goes and shepherds. And he says, is this what my lot is? For refusing to be an Egyptian and choosing God's people? And the story's not presented as if he's complaining and he's hopeless and he's disappointed. He, he goes. Now this is interesting because Paul, he counts it all as loss. Moses makes these comparisons and chooses what's better. It seems like God's people don't have plan Bs. It seems like they never have like a fallback plan, right? I mean, I don't think they had really thought through what they were going to do if they got to Jericho and it didn't work. And if you would ask them, I think they, they might have been like, I guess we'll die. I guess that's the I guess that's the option. Um, so Moses goes. He didn't have a plan to go back to Egypt and sneak his way back into the court, right? And ask for forgiveness and get back in, which again, maybe he could have done. He was a prince. Abraham, we talked to him last week. What was his plan if God didn't stop him before the knife came down on Isaac? There was no backup plan. We mentioned this. You and I, the reason these lists and examples are here, we don't get to define faith, right? It's not something for us to invent or make up. But what I'm afraid we've done, again, at least in the Bible about our little subculture, is we've created backup plans. So here's the question I always want to ask. If God didn't come through for you, would you be hung out to dry? I mean, if... if if God did not exist at all, he never came through on any of his promises to you, would you be okay? I've got to think the answer for a lot of us, even myself, is yeah. And don't give me the lame, well, I wouldn't go to heaven. No, would you eat tomorrow? And would you be happy? And would you have friends around you? Because that's not how faith ever worked for people in the Bible. Faith was a risk. It was an abandonment. It was, I'm putting everything on the table and following him. And if it doesn't work out for me, I have nothing left. There's no backup plan. There's no fallback. Because he's all I want. I could care less about anything else. Faith, it leads to disobedience. It leads to suffering. Here's the last thing we'll look at. Faith is victorious. Faith is victorious. So the walls of Jericho, they fall. And the, the sea parts. The people are passed over. Rahab is 
given grace and mercy. It's not killed and destroyed. In fact, she becomes one of God's people, the line of Jesus. It seems like God-shaped faith, it cannot disappoint us. It's by definition impossible for it to disappoint us. For the reason of, and we talked about last week, the covenant God, the God who promises us these things, is also the creator God. He cannot fail. He's never once in all of history said, I want this to happen, and that not happened. Psalm 115, he's in the heavens, he does whatever pleases him. He's never been frustrated. If he said it will be done, it will be done. Faith, by definition, in our God, cannot disappoint. It cannot lead to frustration. Now, you've got to be careful, once again, because you've got to be sure he promised it, right? This is why it's so unfortunate when some aren't in their Bibles enough, and they walk away from the faith thinking Jesus failed them. Because he didn't do this, or he didn't do this, or he didn't do this. When in reality, that was never promised to them. Jesus didn't fail you. Some God you made up failed you. As they typically do. Now, if God says it will happen, it happens. If he hasn't, you have no guarantees there. So God had said, we're walking out of Egypt. So when they got to the sea, they said, somehow we're getting across. And God had said, you're taking the promised land. So when we went to Jericho, somehow this is working. Now, there are things that doesn't promise. We looked at it last week, in the last two weeks. We'll look at it again next week. Some die by the sword. Some are martyred. But what he has promised will come true. It can't disappoint. Again, not because of us, but because of him. Faith is not some kind of self-discovery or self-esteem boost. In fact, by definition, it's the opposite. It's he comes through, not you, not I. He comes through. Um, so, one of the ways we misread the Bible a lot of time is we compare it to the wrong things. So we take the Genesis 1 story and we compare it to a science book, which is the wrong thing to compare it to. Genesis 1 should be compared to the way other religions talk about creation, which is there's lots of gods, and creation is birthed out of this kind of chess game, this battle between the gods, this war zone. Where in Genesis 1, it's one God, and it's out of peace and love that he creates all things. We read the war stories in the Old Testament, and we compare them to war now. And say, oh, this must say something about whether we can do war, whether it's okay to have violence, whether it's okay to have these crusades and holy wars and things like that. When in fact, you should read those stories and compare them to other war stories of religious people back in the ancient days who said our gods won the battle what's happening in the old testament the israelites never won a battle god did and he went out of his way on so many levels so there'd never be a question about that so if we're just honest marching around the city with a band is not good military strategy i mean you're not going to win an award or a purple heart for that right the point is hey i'm winning the battle and we're walking away from this, and there's not going to be any way you can say, that was pretty impressive. Yeah, you hit that high G? I heard that. Yeah, that was good. I think that's what put him over the edge. No, there's no way. There's no way you can take credit for it. He did it, not us. And now if you want to know if faith is nearby, if it's come before, if it's near, if it's in the area, if it's in the air, you'll know because there's going to be a celebration. The road of faith that ends in celebration. If I read the scriptures correctly, God's victories are always followed by two things. A meal and a song. A 
meal and a song. Look here in verse 28. By faith he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Remember, they sacrificed a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost. The angel passed over. And then they started a yearly meal where they would eat a lamb. And they would sprinkle blood. And they'd remember who God was and what he had done for them. And it wasn't the same lamb that the Israelites had used. And it wasn't the same blood that they had used. And there was no same angel that was happening on that night. But as they told the story and ate the meal together over and over and over again, they were reminding themselves they were part of the story. The same God who saved like that saves us. They had this meal. It would turn very quickly into a week-long festival celebration. Now, interestingly enough, you and I, Christians, have been giving a meal. We call it communion. We're told to eat it, bread and wine, over and over and over and over again. In fact, Jesus started this meal during a Passover meal. Because where faith is, there's a, there's a meal not too far behind. There's a celebration of, in this case, forgiveness. That we've been passed over. A lamb's been shed for our forgiveness. An interesting thing, if you want to think about why the angel didn't just avoid those houses. Why did they need blood to protect them? That's for you to think about. There's a meal, and not too long afterwards, there's a song. If you go all the way back to Exodus 15, we won't do it, we don't have time. But in Exodus 15, the Israelites, led by Moses, sing this great, powerful, majestic song. One of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible, Exodus 15. And it's all about how the Lord is a warrior and he's hurled the Egyptians into the sea. Because anyone who stands against God and his people gets destroyed. If God is for us, who can stand against us? This beautiful song of freedom of being slaves, but being freed because of a battle the Lord fought for us. Now, again, if you go this week, maybe on your own time, to Micah chapter 7. We saw it when we walked through the book of Micah last summer. Micah 7, Micah sings a song to end the book, the last three verses of Micah. And the song sounds a lot like the Exodus 15 song. It's about the Lord winning a battle, the Lord hurling things into the sea. But if you'll notice, there's a big change in the song. No longer are God's people singing about God hurling the Egyptians into the sea. But what is he hurling into the sea now? Our sin. The death that came because of our sin. It seems like the real enemy that Pharaoh and the Egyptians were just a shadow of was sin and death. The real battle that was fought for us was the cross where we were bought and freed. That was the real, in a sense, exodus. We were once slaves, and now we're free. And so we have a meal, and we sing songs. We'll wrap it up, and here's our questions for today. Have you, have I, have us as a church, we had a vision, a revelation of who God is? At some point in our life, have we come to say, He is King, He is God, and He is worthy? He's better? And then if we have... Are we still keeping that in our minds? Or are we distracted? Are we falling away? Are we keeping that before us so that we won't be shaken? If we have, second question, has it created faith in us? Has it created a life of trust and obedience and worship and loyalty? Rahab. I love her. Part of God's people. She saw who God was and said, I'll follow. 
and it didn't matter that she had been abused, and it didn't matter that maybe she had sold herself, and it didn't matter that she wasn't even part of God's people. God looks at her and says, that's mine. I'm proud of that. I'm not ashamed to call her one of my people. I'm not ashamed to mention her over and over and over again in my Bible. Has that faith been created in us? And then lastly, is there a meal and a song around us? Because again, if I read the scriptures correctly, faith is always followed by a meal and a song. So I'm going to pray and we'll see what happens. Father, thank you for today and thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the battle that you've won, you've fought for us, that because of your death, your sacrifice on the cross, you have overcome what has enslaved us, which is our sin, which is the death that results spiritually, physically because of our sin. And we praise you for hurling that into the sea. We ask that you would create in us faith that would allow us to follow and worship and endure. We wouldn't get distracted by tragedy and we wouldn't get distracted by comfort but we would keep you in front of us and follow you to the end of the race. We know and we confess that we need you. We are prone to wonder, prone to be distracted. We know and confess that we need your scriptures, that we need a life of prayer, that we need a life of community. And we pray that you would, by your grace, give us and lead us to all of these things. If you are for us, who can be against us? We need you and we love you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, if this is your first time with us, we'll not participate in communion. We do this every week here at First Colony uh, in example of the early church and after the command of Jesus. Uh, it's an open table. You do not have to be a member to participate with us. Uh, this is a place simply for anyone, Gentile or Jew, American or not American, whoever, old or young, who would like to come and celebrate. <coughs> celebrate our victory that was won. So in just a moment we'll pray and then we'll come up one at a time and take a piece of the bread and dip it into the grape juice and, and we'll remember. We'll remember and we'll worship and, and that might be our meal for today and, and then we'll sing together.